move into our sermon, which can be found, uh, the scripture for can be found in Hebrews. Hebrews 2, chapter 5, excuse me, chapter 2, verse 5 through 9 can be found in your bulletin, and it can also be found in your Bible, of course. Hear the scripture. Now, it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. The word of the Lord. Well, I was scanning the news this week, looking for useless trivia, which is one of the things I love about the internet. Found a very interesting story. It's kind of sad, but you laugh at it and then you feel bad for doing so. Crocodile blamed for Congo air crash. I don't know if you saw this. It was on the news that there was this crash of this Congo airline. A crocodile stashed in a duffel bag got loose on an airplane, frightened passengers, and led to a crash that killed 20 people on board, according to an inquiry in the ac into the accident. An unnamed passenger had hidden the crocodile in a large duffel bag with the intent of selling the reptile. The animal escaped as the plane approached its destination. Pandemonium ensued. The terrified hostess hurried toward the cockpit, followed by the passengers, which made the plane unstable. And despite the best efforts of the pilot, it crashed, killing uh, all 20, 20 of the 21 people aboard. Co crocodile blame for Congo air crash. You know, it's interesting, I've been on this flight kick, you know, thinking and learning about planes, and I was reading this book by a Laura Hillenbrand called Unbreakable. I don't know if you read Seabiscuit, which was written by her. And it's all about the war and the, the ramp up to fight the Japanese. And I saw another crazy statistic. It said that in World War II, 35,900 planes were lost in combat and accidents. The surprise is only a fraction of the ill-flated faded planes were lost in combat. In 1943, for every plane lost in combat, some six planes were lost in accidents. Over time, combat took a greater toll, but combat losses never overtook non-combat losses. See, there's something going on here. These pilots, they were trained in visual flight. Visual flight rule is what they call it, learning to fly by what you see. But their training was somewhat cursory in instrument flight rule, IFR. That's the ability to fly when you can't see anything. And so they would go up in the air and they didn't know their plane as well and they would get lost in the clouds. And they wouldn't quite know how to read the instruments and they would read them wrong and then they would go into what they call a death spiral. It's interesting what happens when you lose your position, isn't it? I remember my wife and I, we were driving from uh, D.C. It was she was my girlfriend, actually, at the time. We had driven up to D.C. to see the Smithsonian's. And we were coming back, and it was kind of late at night, and it was on 66, and it was kind of a foggy night. 
when all of a sudden, the 18-wheeler in front of us slows down very rapidly. And I'm thinking, oh gosh, there must be a wreck or something like that. And so I slow down, and then out of the mist comes a man running at me. And he proceeds to run alongside my car, open the back door, and begin to get in. And while he's doing so, he utters these words, you gotta help me, they're chasing me. Now, I don't know about you, but when someone says, you gotta help me, they're chasing me, it's not good. So I did what any uh, respectful guy would do, I hit the gas, <laughs> took off. I mean, I was just so freaked out. This guy is trying to get in my car. And he's, he's got one foot in and one foot out, and he's hopping along, and I'm literally uttering this voiceless scream <sighs> as this guy's trying to get into my car. Well, pretty soon I'm getting fast enough that he can't stay hopping, so his feet are alongside, and he's running, trying to get into my car. And I keep on accelerating, and then as quick as lightning, I don't know what happened, he trips, the door shuts, and I look in my rearview mirror and I see this guy just tumbling behind me. And lo and behold, about you know, 15 seconds as we kept on drawing at the, driving at the speed of light, I see these guys coming alongside with flares and they look like police or FBI or something like that. But what was so interesting was Leon and I were so in shock by what we saw, we literally didn't speak for the next 10 minutes. And we missed our turn to go to Charlottesville. We kept on going all the way to 81 and actually had to go through JMU to stand another two hours to get back to where we were going. You know, when something cataclysmic happens, you lose your position. You're not sure what's up and what's down. I don't know about you, but have you ever felt that way before? Where you flew into a bank of clouds and you didn't know which way was up and which was down. You totally lost your position. You're going along, everything's fine, and then all of a sudden there are layoffs at the office and you find yourself out of work and you didn't see that happening and you're in the clouds. Or there's a death in the family and you've never experienced something that close and it really hits you hard and all of a sudden you, you don't know which way is up and which way is down. And you find yourself starting to go into that death spiral. Well, that's what's going on in this passage here. This church that the author is writing to in the book of Hebrews has lost their position. They've lost their coordinates. They've flown into a cloud. See, life is hard for them. They heard this message of the gospel. They received it. They accepted it with joy. And then life got difficult because the people around them didn't like this Jesus they were preaching. And so they were confiscating their properties. They were throwing them out of the trade guilds so they couldn't work. They were uh, persecuting them emotionally, maybe physically. There were threats of death upon them. And they're scratching their head wondering, what is going on here? We thought life was supposed to look like this, but then we flew into a cloud and we're not sure what's up and what's down. Well, the author here in this passage tells them and us that there is a way to keep our focused, even in the midst of the cloud. And that is to look to the one person, the one thing that will never change. And that's Jesus Christ. Everything around, he says, will change, but there's one person who will not change, and it's Jesus Christ. And if you look to him, he will keep you oriented. 
But sometimes you're going to have to fly by instruments. You're going to have to fly by faith and not sight. Because in this journey of faith, if you go by what you see, you are certain at some time to be disappointed. You're going to have to fly by faith and not sight. You see, in this journey, it's not about seeing is believing. It's about believing is seeing. And so this, pa- this person in this scripture here, the pastor who wrote this scripture, gives us three axes, three axes. You know how there are three coordinates, up, down, forward, and back, left and right, of how we can see Jesus. The first is how we can see him in the future. And because we can understand him in the future, we can take hope. The second is we can understand him in the present. And because we can understand him in the present, we can take courage. And then finally, because we can understand him in the past and what he's done, we can take joy. And so what we're going to do for the rest of this this time is we're going to look at these three axes, forward, future, present, and backward, so we can understand how to stay oriented even when we fly into into the cloud. Well, let's look at the future. It starts off right there in Hebrews 2.5 where it says, it was, Now it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. Right there that tells us something very, very important. And that's that this is not the final world. Now it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come. There is another world that is coming a world that is in the future that we have not quite gotten to, the final destination. And who is the ruler of this final world which is to come? Passage tells us that it's not angels. Now, it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. Well, who is it? Is it people? We're not exactly sure. The clue, however, is in the passage right after, where the writer quotes Psalm 8, It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything at his feet. This passage was used to talk about man. This is David, who's thinking about the world and about mankind and about himself. And he's looking at God and he's saying, what is man that you are mindful of him? the son of man that you care for him. You made him a little lower than the angels and you crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection to his feet. It's talking about this world, that man was put in charge of this world. The scriptures say that the heavens belong to the Lord, but the earth he has given to man. If we play the tape back all the way to Genesis 1.28, when God creates man and woman, he says, be fruitful and multiply. Have dominion over this earth, over the birds of the air and the beasts of the field and the fish of the sea. Spread out, have dominion, be fruitful and multiply. This is the world that I've given you to rule. And man was given this task to take the glory of God and to spread it over the face of the earth. Remember that picture in 1969 where the the moon guy comes down and he plants the flag of the United States? Man was meant to do that across the entire world, planting the flag of the glory of God. That's why he was made in the image of God. And if man had accomplished this, 
If man had done the task, he would have inherited this world to come, the final world when everything was complete. But as we know, man did not do it, did he? He saw the apple and he ate it. And the result of that is felt like a shockwave throughout all of the history of mankind. The reason that this world is broken is because the leadership of man and woman was not capable of leading this earth. Think about it, all the problems of the world, famine, uh, pestilence, poverty, war, all of them stem from the fact that man was not capable of leading the earth. He was capable but chose not to. But this passage here is not only about man, it's also about the son of man. Notice, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? Many of you know that Jesus, the number one phrase that he used to identify himself was the son of man. See, Jesus, though being God, superior over all beings, the angels and humanity, was made a little bit lower than the angels was put in this position of humility to accomplish something, the rescue of the human race. And because he, was a, he accomplished what humans did not, he was crowned with glory and honor. He received the honor and the glory that was due to us. Rather, he received it. And because of that, he has been put in charge of the world to come. The result of this is that we can look forward to a new world, a world where there is no hate, where there is no anger, where there is no discord or dissension, the world that we hoped this earth would be but would never be. This is the world to come, the world that God has subjected to the rule of God. <laughs> but we must put this world in its proper place because of this, not as the destination but as a stop on the journey home. It's real interesting. I took a flight recently, uh, went down to Atlanta, and uh, got on Delta flight. And I came and I sat down. And the guy next to me was a little bit strange because he had his seat set up like a room. He had a picture taped to the wall, and he had his little table down, and he had a vase with some flowers. And he had a little clock, and he had a little... and. I mean, it looked like he was, like, living there or something. So I, I asked him, you know, what's, what's going on here? And he says, well, this is my home. I live here. This is my address, Delta 264, uh, row 13A. I said, how long have you been living here? He said, oh, about 11 years. I said, this is, this is ridiculous. This is not a home. This is a flight. I mean, how do you eat? He said, well, I have a personal assistant who brings me meals three times a day. In fact, if I ever want anything, I press the button and my assistant comes to me. If I need a pillow, if I need a blanket, I'm well taken care of in my little home here. Well, how do you communicate with people? Well, I have internet right here, and I in-flight internet, and I have phone, and I can talk, and I have email. I even have a nice selection of movies when I want to go ahead and have entertainment. Now, by this time, I'm incredulous. I say to him, what about all the people who are coming in and out? He says, it's true this neighborhood has a high turnover rate. <laughs> but, you know, there is some stability here. Sooner or later, things will settle down with the economy. And I said, well, he even said to me, I I'm looking to upgrade. 
I have my eye on this uh, address number 1C in the front. It's real first class. I tried to explain to him, no, 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 no. This is not the destination. This is the journey. It's kind of ridiculous, isn't it? To spend all your life living like you're on a plane, like that's the actual place that you're supposed to be. But don't we do the same thing? Don't we make this home our Delta Flight 264 11C? The world that we belong in is the world that is to come, not this world. And so we must focus our mind on the world to come. The scriptures tell us to set our mind on the world to come. See, for me to hear this is so wonderful because, listen, if you feel like you're a failure in this life, if you look back upon your life and you say, I'm not sure what I've done, I don't have anything to show for my efforts, guess what? This is not the destination. It's only part of the journey. But it also causes us to take caution because maybe you feel like, you know what, I'm a real success. I've been a success in this world. I've made my place here. Take caution because this is just the journey. It's not the destination. Well, how do we live this way? Isn't that the question? The scriptures tell us to set our mind on the world to come. Colossians 3.1, since you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. See, there's something that happens when we make decisions in the light of the world to come rather than in this world. It's a different focus, if you will. Start looking at things differently. Things that seem so important to us lose more and more of their value. Heard one friend tell me, you know, whenever you're making an important decision, the best place to make it in is a graveyard because you get perspective on life. Well, some people may object to that. You know, you've heard the statement, some people are so heavenly-minded that they're no earthly good. You know, in my 20-plus years of being a Christian, I have never met one of those people. C.S. Lewis that put it this way, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were precisely those who thought most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this one. The apostles themselves who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English and evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this one. We must set our minds on things to come. We must stop our pursuing of trivial things, of bickering and complaining over things that have no real lasting significance in our life. What is your focus? How often do you think about the world to come? Do you think about it often? Do you think about it at all? Perhaps one of the reasons that we don't think about it is that we're too focused on things here. And that is why we must set our heart on the world to come, not just our mind. Jesus put it this way, do not store up for yourselves treasure in heaven where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, your heart will be also. 
See, all of us have a little safe. A little safe where we keep the treasures of our heart. Can't see it. It's inside here. But it's the treasures of our heart. It's the thing that we want to keep safe, the thing that we want to keep locked up that no one can ever get to. And what Jesus is essentially saying is take these treasures and make sure that you're building up treasure in another safe because there is another safe in the world to come, the safe of things that will last. Certainly there are things that are important on this earth, our possessions, our relationships, and so forth. But things will perish here, but labor done for Christ will stand forever. For loving Christ and loving his people will stand forever. For being a servant, those who will be a servant on this earth will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. We can't see it, but in this life, believing is seen, not seen is believing. That is a picture of the future. Now I want to talk about understanding the present. Because Christ is Lord of the present, we can take courage. But what are we to make of this world anyways? Why is this world to come taking so long? We see here in the scripture, now in putting everything in subjection to him, verse 8, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor. Jesus was made a little lower than the angels. He became a human. He was our representative. He was crucified for our sins. And how do we know that he was crowned with glory and honor? Because he was resurrected. He was seated at the right hand of the Father. The reason why the future has not come yet even though all things are in his control and all things are not subject to him, is because Christ is giving us a path into the new world. When you think about it, how do we move from this one world into the next one? We need a path, and we see that the path is Jesus Christ. If there is a future world, how do we inherit it? We inherit it through Christ. Listen to 1 Corinthians 15, which was read in our praying the scripture. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all, shall be, uh, all in Christ shall be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his foot. See, what we failed to do, Christ did. And what he did, we will become, each in his own order. So this world that we live in right now is the process where this is being worked out. Christ is the doorway to the new humanity. Many are subject to him now, aren't they? Some of us who call on the name of Christ. And if you do so, this process has already begun. 2 Corinthians 3.18 tells us all who behold the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. But the reality is plenty do not subject themselves to Jesus Christ. We have a little bit of a misnomer of why Christ came to earth. 
He came to save his people, but he also came to do something else. This is what Jesus said. Do you think I came to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but division. Jesus Christ came to reveal the hearts of man. Jesus told a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. A man of noble birth went to a distant land to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called 10 of his servants and he gave them 10 minus. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But the subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and returned home. And then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what, they'd, uh, what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, Sir, your, your mina has earned ten more. Well done, my good servant. Because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of ten cities. The second one said, Sir, your mina has earned five more. Well done, you take charge of five cities. Then another servant came and said, Sir, here is your mina. I have kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I am a hard man, taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow? Why then didn't you put my money on deposit so that when I came back I could have collected it with interest? Then he said to those standing by, Take his mina from him and give it to the one who has ten. Sir, they said, he already has ten. He replied, I tell you that to everyone who has more will be given, but as for the one who has nothing, even what he has will be taken away. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. This world is the chance to recognize who Jesus is and to act accordingly. There was the one who took the one, Mina, and he made ten out of it. And there was the one who took the five, one and made five out of it. But there was the one that didn't recognize the master for who he was, who chose to ignore him. You may say, well, that's not fair. The truth of the matter is, if Jesus is the almighty king, he deserves all of our worship. And if he's not, he deserves nothing. According to American historian William O'Neill, Paralytic poliomyelitis was, if not the most serious, easily the most frightening public epidemic that this country has ever seen in the post-war era. By 1952, epidemics keep, kept getting worse, and the victims were usually children, killing more of them than any other communicable disease. Nearly 58,000 cases of polio were reported in 1952 with 3,000 people dying and 21,000 left with mild to disabling paralysis. In some parts of the country, concern assumed almost the dimensions of panic. Parents kept children home from school, avoided parks and swimming pools, and played only in small groups with the closest of friends. Cases usually uh, increased during the summer when children went home from school when this frightful visitor, polio, returned. Enter Jonas Salk. A graduate of New York University of Medicine, he stood out from his peers, not just because of his academic prowess, but because of his desire to be, do medical research. Salk tackled polio with full vigor, spending 18 hours a day for weeks on end trying to solve the mystery. 
but to no avail. Saul became discouraged. At one point, he even thought of giving up. But as he was sitting in a park and watching children play, he realized how important his work was. He saw that there were thousands of children and adults who would never walk again and whose bodies would be paralyzed. He realized his awesome responsibility, and so he continued his task with a renewed vigor. Well, his results and his hard work paid off. For in 1954, Salk's vaccine was ready for field testing. The problem was nobody was going to take it because the virus, you would inject the killed virus into your bloodstream. No one was going to dare take the polio virus. And so Salk and his wife, to prove his belief that it would work, took the virus first. The field tests commenced, and on 1955, Dr. Thomas Francis declared the vaccine to be safe and effective. The results were clear. Inside the auditorium, Americans tearfully and joyfully embraced the results. By the time he stepped down from the podium, church bells were ringing across the country, factories were observing moments of silence, synagogues and churches were holding prayer meetings, and parents and teachers were weeping. It was as if the war had ended, one observer required, recalled. Well, the cure was found, and the race was out to take the vaccine. Quickly in America, the vaccine spread like wildfire, and almost instantly polio disappeared. And in the industrial countries of the world, it soon followed that polio was eradicated off the face of the map. And then researchers believed from the data that they had that they could eradicate polio from the face of the earth. So 1988, the World Health Organization, UNICEF, and Rotary passed a global polio initiative with the goal of eradicating polio by the year 2000. And they were largely successful. In the year 2000, the Pacific region, including China, was declared polio-free. In 2010, more than 2 billion children were immunized against polio in 120 countries. To the end of May 2011 of this year, only 195 cases globally have been reported. Without this, there would have been 5 million cases of paralysis and 250,000 deaths. The cure was found in 1954, but it took 56 years for the cure to spread to the four corners of the world. See, the cure was found to the human condition 2,000 years ago but it is still spreading. The entire earth has not heard. And so if we can take hope for the future, we can take courage for the present, that we have received the vaccine, the life of Christ who is inside of us, who guarantees us an eternal inheritance. And even though we cannot see that everything is in subjection to him, we can take hope for Christ has come and Christ has saved us. This brings me to my final point, to take joy in the past. If we look at verse 9, we see him who for a while was made, excuse me, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Why did Christ achieve this crown of glory? Because of the suffering of death. It was precisely because Christ was willing to suffer for his people that he was worthy of being Lord over him. He was worthy of, his king, of this kingship. 
But the question I want to touch in this last couple minutes is what are we to make of the second part? So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. And yet we see that everyone in the world does not call Jesus Lord. Who are we to make of this concept that Jesus tasted death for everyone? Was Christ's death, his vaccine, not effective for the whole world? If Christ's death was effective for the whole world, why are there still people who go to hell? Why are there still people who go to hell? But clearly it says here, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. There is a big difference between saying what the Bible says and meaning what the Bible means. Let me give you an example. Let's say I was going to the store and the whole family was going to go with me and so we piled everyone in and before we left, I turned and I said, is everyone here? Which is the everyone that I'm talking about. I'm talking about our folks. See, there's a popular belief that Christ died for the sins of everyone in the world. See, it's up to you to take it or leave it. The way it's been described is Christ is like a ticket. He's a ticket to salvation. And it's been handed to you, but you have to pick up the ticket. Because if you don't, you will die for your sin. But what sins? If Christ died, what sins are there possible that one would die for? can only mean one thing that there is one sin that Jesus did not die for, the sin of unbelief. Jesus died for all the rest of the sins, but there's one sin he didn't, the sin of unbelief. You must supply your own belief. Christ will take care of everything else. Well, that's problematic because, number one, the Bible does not say that. It says, put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. It is because of all the sins of the world that wrath, the wrath of God is coming, not just the sin of unbelief. Number two, if it is true that Christ died for everyone, uh, every sin except one, the sin of unbelief, we should stop sending missionaries anywhere. We shouldn't send missionaries to any place whatsoever. We should call them all back. Because if we send missionaries and they hear the gospel and they choose not to believe it, they're damned for their sins. Well, we know that doesn't make sense. Finally, this message is not true because it's inconsistent with the message of Scripture. Ephesians 2.1 says it this way, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. But because of his great love for us, Christ, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is a gift of God. See, we were dead in our transgressions. Christ not only purchased the ticket, he purchased the belief that you would have so that you would desire. Now, why am I hitting on this? Why am I taking time on this? The reason I'm taking time on this is because if we believe that Christ died for the sins of the world, Christ is impersonal. He's like a cafeteria 
that you come along and take. But the scriptures tell us that Christ is not like that at all. Christ is a pursuer. He doesn't care about the world. He cares about you. I've been married to Lee Ellen for 17 years. I remember dating her at the University of Virginia and how spending time with her, how my heart warmed to her above all others. And I knew at a certain point in my life that I wanted to spend the rest of my life with her. And so I focused. I wooed her. I set my affection on her. I loved her. I pursued her. I was faithful to her because no other would do. But what if I had done it in a different way? What if I had announced to the entire female population of the University of Virginia that I love any woman who will love me back, but if you don't love me, I will not love you? See, to love indiscriminately is not love. It's not personal love. Jesus Christ tasted death for you. He pursued you. He found you. He set his affection on you. He overwhelmed you with his love to the point that you wanted him. Christ came on a rescue mission for you and for you and all he came to save. Why are you a Christian? Is it because you figured this all out yourself? No, it's because Christ died on a cross for you. For his suffering, it was your name that kept him going. And so, we can take joy in the past. Even when we're lost in the clouds, when everything about us feels that God doesn't care about us, that we're just a number, we're just one who grabbed the ticket, we can remember that Christ wooed us, that he put his affection on us. When you look around and don't feel special, when you feel that your faith is weak, he will not let you go because he chose you. He loves you not because of anything you do, but simply because he chooses to you. Some of you may say, it's not fair that he died for me. Why not someone else? My advice to you is to be careful. You have no idea what God is doing in someone else's life. You only can know what he's doing in you. Some of you in this room may say, well, I haven't made this decision for Christ. How do I know that Christ died for me? What if I can't be saved? Well, I want you to hear this very clearly, and I'll finish with this point. Never, ever, ever will there ever be a time on the face of the earth that can, anyone can say with any truth, I wanted God. I wanted to give my life to Jesus, but he wouldn't let me. I wanted God, but he didn't want me. The fact that you are here, is it not part of God maybe pursuing you, drawing you to himself? Christ tasted death for you. Conclude with these thoughts. It's easy to be disoriented by the challenges of this world. Easy to fly into the clouds and to lose your way. Many of you may be in the clouds right now and you're not sure what's up and what's down and what's right and what's left. But we must fix our eyes on Jesus because he never changes. We must fly by faith, remember the coordinates, look to the future, the world to come and take hope. Look to the present and what Christ is doing and take courage. 
and look to the past and what he's done for you. Take joy. Seeing is not believing in this journey of faith. Believing, rather, is seeing. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for this message that while we were lost, you came and you found us. You set your affection on us. You wooed us and you pursued us and you gave us this belief that we might call you Lord and Savior. And because of that, you'll never let us go. Because of this, you give us a future, a world that is to come. Strengthen us in this world, this present world, Lord. Help us to take courage and to fly by faith. All of this we pray in Christ's name. Amen. We now enter into a time where we normally take our offering. Uh, there are many ways to respond to what God is doing. I think we have a little insert. I don't have it in front of me. If you're a visitor to Church of the Redeemer, don't feel compelled in any way to give. Give as the Lord directs. But there are other ways to respond in that piece of paper. You may need prayer. You may need to talk to someone about these things. Go ahead and check that box. You may want to know more about Church of the Redeemer. Go ahead and check that box. Respond as the Lord is calling on your heart as we take our tithes and our offerings. Christ set his affection on you. And because he set his affection on you, he tasted death for you. And in the communion table, we see the symbol of his body and blood shed for us. But communion is more than simply memorialism. It shows that Christ is continuing to strengthen us on this journey of faith, that he is alive, that he's working in the world and he's working in our hearts because he surely will draw us to himself. As such, communion is for believers. If you believe on Jesus Christ, if you call him Lord, we invite you to come to the table. If you're not a believer, if you're not sure what you believe, we uh, ask that you would refrain. 
and that you would take time to process and think about the things that we talked about. And we have some meditations for you in the bulletin as well. Let me ask